Amen. Lord, you are worthy. Lord, in a world where so many things are worshipped, so many things are pursued, you are truly the only thing worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, to be honored, and to be lifted up. And Lord, we pray right now as we go to your word, we do pray that man would decrease, that your spirit would increase, that you would be our teacher tonight, that Lord, our hearts would be soft and receptive to what you want to minister to every single one of us, Lord. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. It's great to have you here tonight. Um, if, you're, if you're here and you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible, that means you need one. So raise your hand. We'll be happy to loan you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take that one home as our gift to you. And, uh, and would you please turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 8. We continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament here on Wednesday night. And... Uh, we're going to just pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago. Last week we had our Christmas Eve service. That was a blessing. Um, but we're going to pick up where we left off from two weeks ago. Now, numbers. We've been talking about this as we've gone through it each week. That people call it the book of numbers and it scares a lot of people right off the bat because they think you're going to read a bunch of endless genealogies and what else is in the book. And we've talked about that every single word, every single verse, every single chapter in the Bible, God put there for a reason. And if, since it's in His Word, we need to study it. We talked about the fact that the book of Numbers could be better titled, in my opinion, while every word is inspired by God, the, the titles aren't necessarily of the books. And the book of Numbers is called Numbers because the people are numbered twice. But what the book really follows is the, the 40 years of wandering, the time of wandering in the wilderness because of the disobedience of God's people. Israel took an 11-day journey and turned it into a 40 year death march. And it happened because of their disobedience before God. And so we see in Numbers, in the first four chapters, we saw how God is really a God who's into organization physically. Remember, He had delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. Genesis is really all about how God created man in His image, and man sinned and fell away from Him. The book of Exodus is how God delivered us from the bondage or picture of sin. And then Leviticus is all about how we have a holy relationship before God, and that's what all the, the sacrificial system's about. Now in Numbers, they're traveling from Mount Sinai, headed toward the land of promise. And God organizes His people very clearly. Remember we talked about the way that He organized them, and that each one of different tribes camped in a different direction. And we talked specifically about how when God the Father looked down from heaven, when God looked down from heaven and He saw Israel marching through the wilderness, they were marched in the shape of a what? Who remembers? A cross. They were encamped in the cross. They were living in tents in temporary dwelling places, and then what was in the center of the camp? What dwelt in the center, or who dwelt, I should say, in the center of the camp? God did in His glory in the, in the Holy of Holies. So this, this cross, encamped in the cross, in these temporary tents, tabernacles, marching toward the land of promise, and at the center of it was God's glory. We talked about how God had specific calling on the Levites. And how they were very specifically to, to camp in a certain way and organize in a certain way. But God had specific calling. And the Levites themselves were called and set apart by God. And if you remember, initially, it was supposed to be the firstborn. But remember what happened when, in Exodus 32, when, they came, when Moses came down from the mountain, after being up on Sinai, what did he find when he got to the bottom of the mountain? What were they doing? They were partying and they were drinking and they had a golden calf out of control. And what had happened was that he had gone away. Remember, they were murmuring and complaining. He brought us out here to die, and he's never coming back. It's been 40 days. 40 in the Bible, the number of what? Testing. And so during that testing time, he's up on the mountain, and when he comes back down, they're partying. And remember what happened, that he stood and he said, all of you who are on the Lord's side, come to me. And every single one of the Levites came to him, it says in the text. All of the Levites came to him. And that's when God said, you know what, I've no longer chosen the firstborn, but I'm going to choose the Levites to serve me. Now the blessing of those in service was that the Levites were the ones that got to encamp closest to the tabernacle. And I believe that's a picture for us that those of us who are serving in ministry, whether it's just coming early and setting up chairs or ministering to our co-workers, when we're ministering to the Lord and ministering for the Lord, we're the ones that are closest to Him. And the Levites, because they were active in ministry, they were the ones that got to camp closest to the cross, or closest in the cross to the tabernacle, the place of God's glory. Remember we talked about the fact that what moved that cross, what moved that encampment? They would wake up in the morning, or they'd stand all day long, and right over the, the 
top of the tabernacle itself, above the Holy of Holies, was the glory of God. The Shekinah glory of God dwelt there. It was a pillar, a cloud or a pillar of fire. And what would happen is as soon as that glory would move, when that cloud moved or that pillar of fire would move, then they would follow it. And so the first thought of the Levites every morning, the first thought of everybody in camp, in the camp would be to look up. They'd wake up in the morning and make sure that the glory hadn't moved because if it had, they wanted to make sure they stayed in God's glory and they stayed in His presence. What a great example for us. Shouldn't we wake up every morning looking up first, amen? Shouldn't we begin our day and have our eyes focused on Him and be desiring to be in the center of His presence? And so as they're marching through the wilderness, that's what we've seen. And again, it's a picture for us because we live in temporary tents, these bodies. And we have in the center of us, as they had in the center of them, God's glory dwells in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we're headed to the land of promise. And we're encamped in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at numbers, while you may say, oh, it's an old book, it's 3,500 years ago it was written. What has it got to do with my life? It's got everything to do with our lives. And then we move from his organization to the desire that he had for us to walk in purity before him. Too often as Christians, and I just talked to a pastor this week, and you know, often we get caught up in what I call cheap grace. Now, understand, salvation is not of works, lest any man should boast. Amen? You don't get saved because you did such great things that God can't live without you. You know what I mean? Oh, well, oh, you're so awesome. Got to have you on my team. You just worked so hard. Okay, you're going to heaven. No, that's not it at all. But I'll tell you what, at the same time, when we're born again, we don't live under cheap grace where, hey, I'm saved so I can just live like the world now. I got my get out of hell free card in my wallet so I can just live like the world. It doesn't matter what I do. And sadly, we see a lot of that in the church today where it's cheap grace. It's be like the world all week and just make sure that, you know, you got some kind of relationship with God. But God's desire for the, those in the wilderness and His desire for us today is not that we just know about Him or have a, you know, a, a fringe relationship with Him. He wants to be first in your life. Amen? He wants to be the most important thing in your life. If He's not, what in the world could be more important than Him? Everything else is passing away. And so we saw the emphasis being put on taking the uncleanness out of the camp. Remember, leprosy was removed from the camp. Leprosy, a picture of public or outward sin. Also removed from the camp were those with a discharge or an issue of blood. Again, a hidden sin that nobody else would know about. Or those who had touched a dead body or been near a dead body or defiled by the world. So whether it's outward sin that everybody knows about, or it's inward sin that only you know about, or it's you being defiled by the world, the reality is that sin separates us from God. And God desires that we would walk in holiness before Him. He's a God of grace. We don't earn salvation, but He desires that we be holy in our relationship with Him. And then the last couple of weeks, we saw the, the Nazarite vow. If you remember that, He said, you know, don't, if you desire, now this is the blessing right here that we need, all need to understand. The Levites were called by lineage, right? Because they were Levites of the tribe of Levi, they automatically were put in a position of ministry in the tabernacle. If you were a son of Aaron, you were automatically serving as a priest. I mentioned to, to us today, that's not how it works for us, but we are put into ministry by our lineage. But it's by being coming sons and daughters of the living God when we were born again. If you're born again, you're called to ministry. If you're here and you're saved, you're called. God doesn't call some, He calls all of us to do ministry. You may not all be called to, to be pastors or called to be full-time, or called, but we're all called to be in the ministry. He didn't save us, as we say often here, to be pew potatoes, right? To be the biggest, fattest sheep in town. He saved us to use us, and the dead sea is dead because that has an inlet and no outlet, right? And God desires that we take what we've been ministered and we would reach out to others. But the Nazarite vow was not just for the Levites. And it wasn't just for Aaron's son. It was any man or woman who decided to take a vow. Before God and say, God, I want you to be first and I want everyone to know it. And part of that vow was no wine. Do you remember this from a couple weeks ago? No alcohol. Why? Because what does alcohol do? I believe it dumbs down conviction. You know, when, when you're, people do things when they're lit that they would never do sober. Amen? Is that true? Because even someone who's not saved, they have the conviction of the Holy Spirit being with them. He's not in them, they're not born again, but they would have no understanding of right or wrong apart from the Holy Spirit. Why is it when people want to go meet people, they go to a bar? Because they want to lose their inhibitions, right? And that's 
And he said, the Nazarite vow was, you know what, don't touch wine because I want your focus to be completely on me. I want you to be clear-minded in your focus and your passion and desire to, to walk after me. And remember that he said, no wine, no grapes, no seeds, no skin, no nothing. Because he knows how we are. We look for the loophole, don't we? You look in the Bible and you go, well, it says no wine, but, you know, if I have some fermented grapes, that's not really wine. What if I had a slush that had some alcohol? You know what I mean? And we'll, we'll do things to try to legitimize our sin and look for the loophole instead of erring on the side of holiness. And he said, hey, if you can take a Nazarite vow, don't touch anything that's got alcohol anywhere, no seeds, no raisins. Right? Sun-made company be out of business. Right? You No raisins, nothing. The second one was they were not to cut their hair. And what I talked about was how there was an outward identification to the world they had taken this vow. They let their hair grow long, they wouldn't put a razor to their, to their body, and they were saying, look, I want everybody to know that I've made this vow before God. And as Christians, we need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and His conviction, and we also need to be identified. Everyone you know should know that you're a Christian. Amen? Not undercover Christians. That's not a good thing. If people find out you're saved at work and they're surprised, that's not good. If your neighbors are shocked, oh, you're saved? I didn't know. That's not good, Right? And it's really not good if they're blown away that you're a Christian because of the way that maybe you live, right? That's really not good. I told you that story, a co-worker I had, he told some people he was a Christian, and literally two guys were laying in the ground laughing so hard. They were holding their stomachs going, I, you, I, and they were laughing. And I'm like, oh, that hurts. That's not good, right? We had, we'd have a good testimony on the outside. And then lastly, when they took the Nazarite vow, along with no wine and, and not cutting the hair, it was not to be touching any dead bodies. Again, not tainted by the world. And then last time, we looked at Numbers chapter 7, which is the second longest chapter in the entire Bible. And we talked about how the longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, and the emphasis in that Bible was what, in that chapter is what? It's God's Word. And it's interesting to me that the, the emphasis in the second longest chapter in the Bible, which we looked at last time, was what? Who remembers? Who remembers? It was two weeks ago. Giving. There you go. God bless you. Someone's listening. Praise the Lord. Made me feel good. All right, that's good. But it's giving. So it's God's Word is the longest chapter. The emphasis is on God's Word. How shall a young man, you know, find his way, right? How's a young man going to walk in holiness before God? He'll desire the Word. We sanctify our homes by the washing of the water of the Word of God. And then it was on giving. And we titled the message, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And remember that while the, the, the Israelites had a lot of problems, as we're going to see as we continue through Numbers, they blow it a lot. One area where they seem not to have a problem at all is giving. Remember how initially, back again in Exodus, that they were called to bring things to build their tabernacle? You guys remember that? And, he, and they said, here's what we're going to need, and anybody of his own free will, go home and pray about it, go home and you know, check your own heart, and then bring stuff to build their tabernacle. And do you remember what happened? They brought so much stuff that they had to tell them to stop bringing stuff. Amazing. I've never heard that happen. In the, in the church we live in today, right? But they brought so much stuff, they finally said, we got too much stuff, stop. And then last time what we saw was now they were called to bring things, again, of their own free will to dedicate the altar and the tabernacle. And if you remember, they all brought, each of the leaders of the 12 tribes brought a plenty. And when they brought, they brought the exact same thing, every one of the tribes, showing that they all had a desire to give for God's glory. And I, lastly, before we look at this chapter, I asked you, what do you think made these guys so generous? Why is it that these guys who were blowing it in so many other ways were so generous when it came to giving to the Lord? I believe that it's the closeness that they had into remembering their bondage in Egypt. It had only been a year. A year earlier, there had been 400 years of bondage and making bricks and being slaves, and being beaten, and, you know, just being oppressed, and all that they went through, and then seeing the, the signs and wonders that God did, the plagues that delivered them, and then the Passover, and now they've been delivered from bondage, and realizing that everything that they brought with them was given to them by God. God gave them everything they had, and they realized, I was in bondage, God delivered me, everything I have came from Him, how can I not give it back to Him? Shouldn't that be the same heart with each of us, amen? Shouldn't we realize how blessed we are, how we too have been delivered from bondage, and how that everything we have was given to us by God and it all belongs to Him anyway. And so when we have that eternal perspective, it's real easy for us to give. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 8, and we're going to move from seeing that leaders not only give, 
And those who have a heart for God not only give, but they serve. And the title for the, mess, the chapter tonight is The Portrait of a Servant. And I'm going to give you seven things that we're going to see in this chapter that point to what, what a true servant looks like. And it begins first by his understanding of what he has become, that he is a new creation in Christ. We're going to see first that, that a servant has seen the light, that the truth's been illuminated to him, that he's been cleansed by the water, which is a picture of God's Word, that he's been atoned for through the blood of Christ, and that he lives a life offered to the Lord. And then lastly, we'll see the practical application that someone who is called by God to serve, and that's all of us, and has a desire to do that, separates themselves from the world, they respond in obedience to His calling, and they give God their very best, not what's left. Okay? So as we go through, I'll, do the, I'll give them to you one at a time. Let's begin in verse 1 of, of Numbers chapter 8, and we're going to see again, spiritual revelation first, salvation first, understanding that desire to serve God because of what He's done for you, because of, of His grace and His mercy. And the first point is that they have seen the light, and that's one of the reasons that they so desire to serve him. Look at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and say to him, when you arrange the lamp, seven lamps shall give light in front of the lampstand. Now this seems really odd that this is dropped in here because last chapter was all about them bringing gifts. And then we're going to see after this, the rest of the chapter after talking about the lamps is going to talk about them serving. And in the middle of it, you see this lampstand thing in here. And it just seems like, where did this come from? Now let me talk about the lampstand for a moment. If you were here when we went through Exodus, the lampstand had how many branches? How many? Seven. Usually when someone asks you a question like that, seven is usually a really good guess, okay? Seven is the number of completeness, it's the number of perfection, and it's a picture of Christ, okay? So this lamp is a picture just like every single uh, furnishing in the holy place is all a picture of Jesus Christ. Who's the light of the world? Jesus. And this lamp is a picture of him being the light of the world. I find it interesting, though, that in Revelation chapter 1 and 2, the churches are referred to as what? Golden lampstands, right? And so this light was in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies had no windows, and without this light, there would be no ministry whatsoever. It would be impossible to do ministry without the lamp. Now, what did they use to light that lamp? What was put in it? Oil. Oil is a picture of what? The Holy Spirit. And so we've got the light of the world, and the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5 that what are we? We are the light of the world. He's the light of the world, but we're the light of the world as we're a reflection of Him. And one of my favorite statements is, be the moon, right? Be a reflection. What does the moon reflect? The S-U-N. And as Christians, we ought to reflect the S-O-N, right? We ought to be a reflection of Him. You know, with the, without the sun, we wouldn't be able to see the moon. And without the S-O-N, people shouldn't, wouldn't be able to see us. And so we need to be light of the world. And so we see here at the beginning of this chapter that the emphasis is back on the light. And it says the light shall be pointing forward. Look what it says there. And give light in front of the lampstand. Now, for extra credit, what was right across from the, the golden lampstand or the menorah that people call menorah today, right? A, a symbol of Israel. What was straight across from the lampstand in the Holy of Holies? What was it? The showbread. Very good. The table of showbread. Now, the showbread is a picture. Who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ. But it's also a picture of fellowship, right? Because the 12 loaves, pictures of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And there was, it was a place of fellowship, a picture of God's fellowship. And that fellowship can only come through Christ. Again, He is the bread of life. But that light shined on the bread. And I love that because without the light in common, we can have no fellowship. Amen? And without the light of Christ living inside of us, we can do no ministry. Can I tell you that, and this is going to sound kind of harsh, but if you're off doing a bunch of stuff, charity-wise, and you're not pointing people to Christ, do you know that it's really pretty much a big waste of time? I really believe that. You know, people go on, quote, missions trips, and they go down to Mexico, and they build a house, which is great. And the Lord wants us to give and, and minister to people, but if we don't share with them the hope that lies within us and share with them how they can have eternal life, all we've done is make them more comfortable on their road to separation from God for all eternity. Amen? 
And isn't it so key that, that all that we do be centered on the light of the world? That we point everyone to Jesus Christ with everything we do. You know, give a cup of cold water, but give it in His name. He wants us to serve. He wants us to love people. He wants us to lay down our lives for people. But He wants us to point them to Him. And so we see here that, that this golden lampstand, he, he wanted them to go in and, and make sure they had it pointing forward. And Aaron did so. He arranged the lamps to face toward the front of the lampstand and the, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now this workmanship of the lampstand was hammered gold. From its shaft to its flowers, it was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. And again, please feel free to grab the tape in Exodus because we go into great detail on this. I do want to say a couple things about the lamp. It was made out of a talent of gold which is about 75 pounds. It was hammered in one piece. Why gold? Gold is a picture of what? Deity, right? What's, what's heaven streets paved with what? Gold. It's a picture of the heavenlies or deity, right? Crowns made of what? Gold, right? Picture of the king. And so we see here that this lampstand, picture of Jesus being the light of the world, without it, no ministry could be done, just as you and I can do no ministry apart from Christ. And it was to point forward, to allow them to do the ministry that God had called them to do. Because without Him, we can do what? Nothing. And nothing in the original language means nothing. Okay, without him, we can do absolutely nothing. And I love that it says here, the last part of this, he says, according to the pattern which the Lord has shown Moses. So when they made the golden lampstand, they didn't have like a committee that they brought in and said, so what do you think it ought to look like? So how do you think we ought to make this lampstand? Well, I'm thinking the lampstand should be this way. I think we ought to have this kind of a lampstand. Let's vote on it. Let's split the church while we're trying to figure out what the lampstand. What was the pattern? It was the pattern the Lord had shown them. I've said this to you many times. What is the pattern for the church today? It's Acts 2.42. What does the church exist for? To, to fulfill the Great Commission. And Acts 2.42 tells us what the church should be. Four things. The breaking of bread. Fellowship. What else? Apostles' doctrine. What else? Anybody know? Prayer. Though, that's the church. And what we've done today is we've gone out and got our own model. You know, a lot of the church today, we go out and get a model and we put it in a box and we say, you know, we need, we need this new model and this new plan pattern after IBM or, you know, here's a good way to reach people and, and we go do something contrary or in addition to God's Word instead of just saying, you know what, let's just teach the Bible and love people and healthy sheep are going to beget healthy sheep and the thing that's going to transform your life is God's Word, not the opinions of men. Not, you know, having the flying will lend us at church on Wednesday night or, you know, any of that, you know, the petting zoo in the ground. And again, if people want to do that, that's fine. But the reality is what's going to change people is it's God's word. And we need to be faithful to that. And it says here, according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses, may we be faithful as a church to use the pattern that God has shown us in his word. You know what? Can I encourage you with something? We don't need to apologize for the Bible. Amen? That's blasphemy. We start apologizing and saying, well, yeah, the Bible says that, but, you know, hey, whoa, this is the Word of God. This is the pattern. May we follow it. And you know what? May we follow all of it, which means love people supernaturally. Amen? Love them. And may they, may they know us by the love we have one for another. So a portrait of a servant, the first thing is that he's seen the light. He no longer walks in spiritual darkness. Again, impossible to serve God while you're spiritually blind, because without him you can do nothing. What else must happen to a servant? Not only must he be uh, illuminated by the light of, of Jesus Christ, but second it says here look, that he is cleansed by the water. Look at verses 5-7. through seven. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonially. Then you shall do to them, th th thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purification on them. Let them shave all their body. Let them wash their clothes and so make themselves clean. Now I want you to notice twofold in this cleansing. It says there, Take the Levites and it says, Thus you shall do to them, cleanse them, sprinkle water on them. So, the priest would come and sprinkle water on the Levites. Now, water in the Bible is a representation of what? What is it? It's God's Word. Now, holy water sometimes, or you know, living water, can be a picture of the Holy Spirit. But we see, again, in Ephesians 5, sanctify your home by the washing of the water of what? Word of God. And so we see here 
that they took and cleansed them with water. They sprinkled this water upon them because it's God's word that transforms life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by... It's the word of God. So God's word transforms us. And so that's what we need to give people is God's word. And so they're sprinkled with this water, this water purification. Now, if you, when we get to Numbers 19, we're going to see that this water purification, they took water and they took ashes of a red heifer. And we'll get into that when we get to Numbers 19. We don't have time to talk about that tonight. But it's a picture again of the purification, purifying work of the cross and how that's what cleanses us. And what is it that makes us understand the cross itself? It's God's Word that illuminates the truth of the cross. But notice here, in verse 7, it says, in the second half, it says, And they shall shave all their body, let them wash their clothes, and so make themselves clean. So now wait a minute, which is it? Does the cleansing come because the, the Levites, the priest, right? Aaron, the high priest, is a picture of Christ, right? He's our great high priest, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us daily, right? He, they sprinkle the water on him. It says that cleanses them, but then it says they are to go and shave their bodies. They're to go and to, to wash their clothes and so make themselves clean. So which is it? Is it the water being sprinkled on them that cleanses them? Or is it them going and, you know, shaving and cleansing themselves? Again, salvation is... It's from Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Amen? It's not Jesus plus a bunch of other works that save us. He said to tell us die on the cross, which means it is what? It's finished. So when he died on the cross, he didn't say, okay, that's part of it. We're a third of the way there. Now, now believe on me and keep these four. No, that's not what he said. But I, I do believe that right here we see another picture that it's the cleansing work of the cross. It's, it's the, the cleansing of his word. But God again desires that we make an outward statement, that we respond in obedience to the work he's done in us. Remember, works do not pr- produce salvation, but salvation does produce works. Amen? It's not salvation plus works or salvation or works, Right? It's not faith plus works or faith or works. It's faith that works, right? When you fall in love with Him, there's going to be an outpouring and a transformation in your life. You're going to love people. You're going to have a burden for the lost. You're going to start having an eternal perspective. It's going to change who you are. And so we see that they were called to be cleansed by the priest, right? They sprinkle the water upon them, but they were to take an act of obedience and respond you know, shaving their body was a mark of humility, of total devotion. Again, remember when they took the Nazarite vow before they let their hair grow long, what did they do first? They shaved. Again, they cleansed themselves completely and said, hey, and it was a mark of humility before God. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. And they washed their clothes, which is an outward statement signifying an inward commitment. To me, again, kind of like a picture of baptism today. Now, do we need to be baptized to be saved? No. But should we be baptized? Absolutely. Why? Because the Lord told us to. And baptism is an outward statement of an inward change. It's letting the whole world know, I want to be identified with Jesus Christ. With His death, burial, and resurrection. Here's what He did for me, and here's who I am now. I'm a new creation in Christ. And so, they were cleansed by the water, but they would shave themselves, and they would wash their clothes as a marker, a response and obedience to the work that God had done. So, we see... Again, that God desires that we respond in obedience, that it's grace that saves us, but He desires that we walk in holiness before Him. Number three, verses 8 through 10, we're going to see not only you know, cleansed by the water, but atoned for by the blood. Look at verses 8 through 10. Then let them take a young bull with its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil, and you shall take another young bull as a sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of meeting, and you shall gather together the whole congregation of the children of Israel. So you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Now, a grain offering and a burnt offering, again, we went through Exodus, we looked at these very much in depth. But remember that a grain offering, they took fine flour, but a grain offering was always given at the same time as a burnt offering. Always. Because a grain offering, what did a grain offering not have? What? Blood. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission for sin. 
And so with that grain offering, this fine flour mixed with oil, again, a picture of a, and we talked about this, again, I don't have time to go in depth, but it's a picture of Christ yet again because the flour was sifted and it was fine and it was without leaven and it was without lump. It was perfect. And they mixed it with oil, oil being a picture of the Holy Spirit. And then the burnt offering was the offering that was brought that was sacrificed 100% to God. Nothing was kept. Total devotion to the Lord. Burnt offering entirely consumed on the altar and then along with that it says there they were to bring a sin offering again what did they do at a sin offering they took it and put it on the bronze altar remember we talked about the fact that it's a the size of a a, basically a full-grown man could lay down on it and reach his hands out remember they would tie it to the four horns a picture of the four points of the cross they would take its blood and sprinkle it on all four horns again just his blood, he bled from his feet, from the top of his head, the crown of thorns from both of his hands, a picture of the cross one more time. And then that, that sin offering, the blood was poured out at the base of the altar. And again, what happened to Christ at the cross? The blood was poured out. And so that sin offering was a picture of that need for redemption. And it pictures, again, that anointing work of Christ. But notice here, I want you to see in verse 10, that they brought them out in front of the whole city, and the, Le- the, the children of Israel laid their hands on the Levites. Now, those of you who've been coming, when they laid their hands on somebody, what was that saying, signifying? What was it? Okay, we agree, but what else? It was identifying yourself, that's it, Rod. What they were saying, remember with the lamb, they would take and put their hand on the top of the lamb's head? What was that saying? This lamb represents me. When they would lay their hand on the scapegoat, remember that? They would lay their hand on the scapegoat and they would confess the sins over it. They would say, this goat is a representation of me. When they lay their hands on the Levites, they were saying that the Levites have taken our place in ministry. That we, we are identifying that they are taking our place, that they are ministering, and that God has called them, and we, agree, and we identify that they're taking that position. And so we see again that the leaders of the 12 tribe lay their hands on them, representing the whole t- nation, again, identifying themselves with them. Your servants serving God. On our behalf, you're substituting it and doing it on our behalf. Number four, they live lives offered to the Lord. Look at verse 11. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. If you guys were here again, a wave offering, they simply, all it meant literally, they waved it before the Lord. They would take what they were offering and they would hold it up like this several times showing that it belonged to the Lord. Now, there were a lot of Levites so I don't think they were like, you know, picking them all up and, you know. But they brought a wave offering and they were signifying that the Levites belonged to the Lord. They offered themselves to the Lord. I remember a guy saying this years ago to me. He said, you know, Pastor Dave, when the offering plate went by, I just wanted to put myself in the plate. I didn't want to give him my money. I just wanted to give him me. You know, I thought, man, amen. You know, that, that should be our heart. Lord, I give you me. I give you, you've given, you gave me your son. I want to give you my everything. I want to give you all that I am and all that I have. And so we see here that again they were offered up. Verse 12, Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls and shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. Now I think this is significant. They laid their hands on the bull signifying what? They're identifying themselves with the bull. And then they had a burnt offering and a sin offering. Why is that important? Because it tells us that cleansing themselves with the water was not enough. That shaving was not enough. The making of vow was not enough. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin. There had to be a sacrifice. There had to be something that substitutionally paid the price on their behalf. And so something had to die. And the same is true for you and I. We can't get there apart from the cross. We can't be good enough. Someone had to pay the price, and that someone had to be perfect. And that's why only Jesus Christ could do it. And so they had the burnt offering that was totally consumed. Verse 13. And you shall stand the Levites before Aaron and his sons, and they shall offer them like a wave offering to the Lord. So they stood them before Aaron and his sons, and the Levites were given to Aaron and his sons to serve them. They were totally submitted to Aaron and his sons. How many of you, be honest, how many of you struggle sometimes with submitting to other people? Raise your hand. Isn't that hard sometimes? It is very hard. And sometimes it's very hard when you're, especially when you're serving somebody 
that's a knucklehead. You know what I mean? And sometimes you say, but you, Lord, you, you told me to, to submit to those in authority over me, but not Bill Clinton. Right? Or, you know, not my boss at work with a bad temper who's screaming all the time. Not, not that person, not that person. No, he, he says submit. And that's the heart of a servant. It's someone who comes and says, it's not about me, Lord. I'm going to do what you've called me to do. And I know that I'm going to say, you know, David, what kind of man was Saul? Saul was throwing spears at him and trying to kill him. But Saul would not touch the Lord's anointed, would he? He had opportunities to kill him. He wouldn't do it. Why? He said, I'm, submit, I'm not going to do that. God put him there. God will bring him down. And we see here that the Levites come in to serve, and they're totally submitted to Aaron and the priests. They say, you know what? And Aaron just made a golden calf. Didn't he? Didn't this guy just make a golden calf and then lie about it? It just popped out. I was just standing here and a calf came crawling out of the, out of the pot. Stop. We were there. Dude, the, Lord, him? He lied. I was there. He made it. He hammered out of the gold. When we came to you, Lord, to serve you, he was the one over there dancing with everybody, making the golden. You want me to serve him? Yes, I do. Oh, man. You know what? In the world... Success is determined by how many people serve you. And in God's kingdom, it's how many people you serve. You want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. And the Levites were brought and they were given to the priest to serve them and to be submitted to them totally. So the portrait of a servant, he has seen the light. It's been illuminated, the truth's been illuminated to him by the cross of Christ. He's been cleansed by the water, the word of God. His sins have been atoned for. He's born again. And his life has been offered to the Lord in response to what he's done for us. Now lastly, we're going to look at the practical applications. And these things apply to us. Look at verse 14 and 15. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. After that, the Levites shall go into service at the tabernacle of meeting, so you shall cleanse them and offer them like a wave offering. So they were separated to serve. They were consecrated to the Lord. What does consecrate mean again? Set apart for what? For holy use. When you see the word consecrated, it means I'm taking this and it's being set apart completely and totally for one use alone, and that's holy use to God. And these Levites were consecrated. They were set aside completely and totally for holy use. And so the practical application here is that they were separated to serve. Once these prescribed acts were done. The Levites were separated from Israel. They belonged to God. They began serving the Lord and assisting the priests in the tabernacle. They put God's calling upon their lives into action. You know what? I'll tell you, one of the things when I talk to Christians a lot, in a lot, a lot of the counseling I do, one of the things people struggle with the most is knowing God's will for their life. How many of you ever struggled with that before? Okay. Can I encourage you with something? Dig a well and see what happens. You know, there are people that have been waiting 15 years for God to reveal to them what He wants them to do. And they're missing out on what God wants them to You know, pray, seek His face, and then go for it. Amen? Practically apply it. The Levites didn't say, okay, they sprinkled the water on us. All right, let's just kind of hang out here for about 15 years. They went straight in and started serving. And that's what God wants us to do. Sometimes we think, well, man, you know, I've only been a Christian five years. I can't really do anything. If you've been saved a day and a half, you've got the Spirit of the living God living inside of you. Amen? You have a testimony. You have an opportunity to share something with a lost and dying world. God wants to use you. And these guys, when they got saved, they put it in action. And, you know, there are too many in the, in the church today. They're just sitting around. And it's sad. I don't know how accurate it is, but I saw a study in, that came from Christianity Today years ago that said 96% of all Christians have never led one person to the Lord in their entire lifetime. Now, is that the Great Commission? Now, only God can save people. It's only by the Holy Spirit. But we're called to respond in obedience to share our faith. And I have an idea, I know for a fact, that God uses those who are available. Amen? If we say, Lord, use me, and I'll share my faith, and I'll, the fruit only comes from Him. I don't convince people to get saved by my great arguments, but I love them. I share the truth, and you know what? There's going to be fruit. And, and to me, I'm not sharing this with you, so, well, oh man, I, I feel guilty, i got to go. No, but what a blessing it is to be able to share with people the thing that's going to transform their eternity. 
Amen? Can there be anything greater that we can do than that? Is there anything that will outlast this life? Again, when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. And these guys responded. They were set apart to the Lord, and they applied it practically to their lives. Number six, they respond to God's calling. Kind of what I've just been talking about. Look at verse 6. For they were wholly given to me from among the children of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of all who opened the womb, the firstborn of all the children of Israel. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. Now what's he talking about? He's talking about Passover. Who is spared at Passover? The firstborn. Remember again, they had to take the blood of a firstborn spotless lamb and they sprinkled the blood, you know, in the shape of a cross at the foot of the doorstep on both sides at the top. Again, picture the cross. And they had to take the blood of the lamb and they had to apply it. It wasn't good enough to go out and bring the lamb into their house and then sacrifice it. It's not good enough just to sacrifice the lamb. It must be applied to the door. It's not good enough to know that Jesus died on the cross. You must apply it to your life. Amen? Not good enough just to know what he did, but to have a relationship with him is key. And so they went and did that, and who was spared? The firstborn. And from that point forward, he said, those are mine. I spared them, they belong to me. I delivered them, they belong to me. How many of us in this room did he deliver? Who do we belong to? To him. Remember he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's? He said, whose whose image is on the coin? Remember that? And he said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Whose image are you and I made in? In His. So who do we belong to? To Him. We're His. You know, I love that. I love that my dad created the universe. How about you? Isn't that good? My best friend created the universe. Alpha and the Omega, Almighty God. What an awesome thing. And so we see here that He looks down and says, I delivered them. They belong to me. I paid the price for them. They're mine. But sadly, as we know, they didn't follow up. What happened again when Moses came down, they were parting and they were reveling and and they were out of control. Verse 18 and 19. I've taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel, and I've given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel to do the work for the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting and to make atonement for the children of Israel that there is no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the sanctuary. Because of their faithfulness and obedience to respond to God's calling, they were blessed to serve the priest in the tabernacle. Again, they couldn't offer sacrifices because they weren't priests. Their calling, though, was just as important. Can I encourage you with that? Can I tell you that whatever you're called to do, whatever it is, you do it as unto the Lord, and every calling is equally important in God's eyes. You know, some people think that being Billy Graham, that he's, he's got the greatest and highest, and he's got a great and a high calling, and God's used him mightily. But I believe there's, you know, some grandmothers sitting in a prayer closet praying four hours a day for their grandchildren, that their calling is every bit as high, if not, you know, can be higher, but you know what I mean? It's just as high to, to be called to do that and respond in obedience to whatever God's called you to do. It's just as important to be the person that comes and sets up the sound, or this, the person that, you know, is on their knees praying, or the person that leads worship, or the person that teaches in the children's ministry, whatever they might be. Sometimes we make the mistake again with the IBM mentality that we view certain ministries as, as being higher than others. But we see here that the Levites calling, what did they do? We saw it a few weeks ago. What was their main task? It was to carry the stuff, wasn't it? Remember that? The Kohathites and the Gershonites and the Merarites, and some of them carried the hardware and some of them carried the furnishings and some of them carried the tents, right, or the curtains. But you know what? If one of those groups didn't do their job, we'd have problems. You need to have a place with a bunch of hardware and tents with no Holy of Holies, right? No Ark of the Covenant. Oh, the Mororites took the day off. The Gershonites took the day off. Or what if they didn't bring the boards? You had a bunch of tents laying flat on the ground and nobody could enter in. They couldn't enter in to make the sacrifice. What if they didn't bring the tent? Well, they couldn't because then it would be uncovering the glory of God. They were all important. And it's important, you know, if we're all ears, where's the seeing, right? If we're all eyes, where's the hearing? God's called all of us and He desires that we all be obedient to the gifts He's given us so the church might function properly. God calls We simply respond in obedience and we should not esteem one calling greater than the other. And it says there that that there should be no plague among the children of Israel. As these guys help guard the sanctuary from from the faithless who would come and meddle with holy things. These guys, remember, where did they sleep at night? Where were they? Right next to the tabernacle. 
So if anybody was going to come into the tabernacle and do something ungodly, they'd have, to, they'd have to step over a bunch of Levites to get there. And God had called these guys to encamp around the tabernacle and make sure that no wolves got in, in a sense, right? No wolves in sheep's clothing. To make sure that someone's not coming in and teaching something contrary to the truth. You know, that's what we're all called to do, you guys. You know, make sure that the truth's being taught. And make sure that there's no one coming in. It's, the Bible says that Satan is a roaring lion, seeking who may devour. We're almost done. Verse 20. Thus Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites according to all the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So the children of Israel did to them. And the Levites purified themselves and washed their clothes. Then Aaron presented them like a wave offering before the Lord. And Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. And after that, the Levites went in to do their work in the tabernacle of meeting before Aaron and his sons. As the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. So they responded in obedience to God's calling. They did exactly what He had called them to do. Can you and I say the same thing? God said, here's what I want you to do, and the Levites did it. Boy, that's my prayer. Lord, show me what you want me to do, and just help me to respond in obedience to what you've called me to do. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Use me. Again, God's not looking for ability, but availability. Amen? He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. You know, He's just looking for someone who says, Lord, I, you know, give me a burden. Show me your heart. Lord, let me see downtown Santa Cruz through your eyes. Let me see my neighbor through your eyes. Give me a burden and a passion for the things that break your heart. Lord, help me to walk in submission and obedience to you. You know, I'm not a big guy for, for New Year's resolutions. Because, you know, contrary to what movements might say, we're not really promise keepers, we're promise breakers for the most part, aren't we? Isn't that true? He's the promise keeper, we just kind of break. And I think it's good to desire to do good things, and, you know, and I'm, I'm gonna, and I, like, here's a good one, you know, read through your Bible in a year. I think that's a great idea. The Bible says we're desire the Word of God more than our necessary food. Amen? Do you guys eat every day? A couple, three times, five times, eight times, right? Right? I know my fridge has got a worn-out hinge on it because every time I walk by, I, I, figure I have to eat something or the fridge is going to feel bad, right? Well, I walk by, it's going to feel shunned. I better get something out of there, right? I mean, that's how we are. But the Bible says we desire God's Word more than our necessary food. You know, we don't, you know, we don't go, you know, oh, I'm weak and I'm weary and, you know, oh, I know, I haven't eaten for four days. That's my problem. We, we, we never seem to do that to ourselves, do we? We make sure the flesh is taken care of, right? I mean, an hour and a half and we're starving. Please, right? My, you know, my mom's in there cleaning the turkey dishes from Thanksgiving and we're already in there picking away at the fridge, right? I mean, we do that. But the Bible says we're desired this more than our necessary food. And sometimes we're struggling spiritually and it's because we haven't fed ourselves in four or five days. Amen? I'm too busy to open up my Bible. You know, read the book, don't wait for the movie, right? We need to crack open God's Word and spend time in His Word because faith does come by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And then lastly, in the last three verses, four verses here, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, This is what pertains to the Levites. From 25 years old and above, one may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And at the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work and shall work no more that they may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of meeting to attend to their needs, but they themselves should do no work. Thus you shall do the Levites regarding their duties. So they were separated to serve. They responded to God's calling, but also I want you to see this. What did they give God? I believe this signifies the fact that they gave Him their best. Because from age 25 to 50, they served in the tabernacle. Now, those of you saw earlier, when did, their, when did their ministry in the tabernacle start at age 30? From age 25 to 30, they were an apprentice. And they had someone, an older saint, who had been, you know, serving there longer, who had invested his life in them. And then from age 30 to 50, they gave the best of their time, the first fruit to the Lord. They gave him the very best that they had. You know, may we not give God what's left. May we give him the best, amen? May we not give him, okay, well now that I've worked my job and then worked out at the gym for three and a half hours and watched four hours of sitcoms, and there's really nothing else left on TV, and I'm about to fall asleep, where's my Bible? Right? And then you wake up in the morning drooling on your Bible. Right? Instead of giving him the first fruits, making him first. I love that um, workshop that Tim Brown from Calvary Fremont did a couple years ago at the pastor's conference. He talked about the difference between 
you know, something that you do because you have to, and something that you do because it's a passion. Talk about the difference between, you know, doing something. And he talked about, you know, a guy that decides he's going to get up every morning at 4 o'clock and read his Bible. He usually gets up at 6. I'm going to get up two hours early, and I'm going to read my Bible for two hours. And, you know, and, and the first day, and by the second day, you know, by 4.15, his face is in his Bible, you know. And he's doing it out of, you know, structure, out of, you know. But then he meets a woman that's gorgeous. And they both have two jobs, and they're going to school, and the only time he can see her is at 4 in the morning for coffee. That guy gets up at 2.30, takes a shower, goes by the flower store, finds her Starbucks coffee, and shows up with a smile on his face and can hardly wait to see her. Well, it's passion. And then we have a passion for God and not do things because we feel like we have to. I'm a Christian, so I guess I better... Man, man, we fall in love with him. It's his love letter to us. So in closing, seven attributes of a, of a true servant of God. One, they've seen the light. Again, that spiritual revelation of salvation. Truth's been illuminated to them. They're no longer walking in darkness. They've been cleansed by the water, the word of God. They've been atoned for by the blood of Christ. And they understand that. They have an eternal perspective. They realize, I've been born again. I've been saved. He's done this work for me. It makes me want to serve. It makes serving him a get-to and not a have-to. I'm doing it out of love for him. Not out of contrition or not out of guilt because someone, you know, twisted my arm up behind my back and made me go in the nursery, right? I'm doing it because I love the Lord and I want to, and it's a get-to. The, they live lives offered to the Lord. And the practical application is being set apart to serve, consecrated to holy use. The Bible says we're to be in the world but not of the world. We should be different. That we respond to His calling, obedient to the Holy Spirit, and we give God what is best, not what's left. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And on, on the verge of this new year, I pray, Lord, You would help us, Father, to just respond to the leading of Your Holy Spirit. Father, we're another day, another year closer to Your soon return. Lord, we know that You could come this year. You could come this week. You could come tonight. Lord, I pray that when You come, we will be found doing the Lord, that we will be just faithful to your calling. And Lord, we know that without you we can do nothing. But Lord, I just pray that we would fall deeper in love with you. And as we fall in love with you and we, we realize that great work you've done for us and we have a, an eternal focus, Lord, may it impact the way that we live and the way that we love others and the way that we reach out to them. So Father, we love you and we praise you. Help us, Lord, to be servants. Help us, Lord, to follow your example as you wash the, the apostles' feet. Lord, may we wash the feet of those around us, Lord. May we serve people and esteem them greater than ourselves. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close a worship song.